Ah, it is certainly good to know that we're loved, isn't it? Oh, that was a really weak response. I'm not going to lie to you. Like, I'm really excited about today. I'm glad to be here. And I came out here a little bit jacked up and said, man, it's good to know that you're loved. And y'all went, yeah, it's cool. All right, whatever. It's good to know that we're loved, right? That's good news. We can get excited about that. We should get excited about that. Ah, man. Thank you so much to, to the band for, for leading us so well today. Um, I guess I should introduce myself. I just came out here and tried to get y'all jacked up. I, I haven't met all of you. Uh, my name is Brian. I'm the teaching pastor here at Fusion City Church. It's my privilege most weeks to, to be able to stand up here and um, take a look at God's Word and what it says. And uh, for the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been kind of walking through some, some things that, that weren't necessarily um, in God's Word, but we're still trying to, to investigate our relationship with God, even apart from Scripture, because this is what we said uh, a couple weeks ago, reemphasized it last week, that for, for those that don't believe like we believe, for those that hold to a different set of ideals, for those that, that, that don't believe in the same God that we believe in, when we're trying to, to make an argument or when we're trying to establish with a friend of ours what we believe in contrast to what they believe, that if they don't believe in our God, then we can't take them to the Bible and say, yeah, but the Bible says. Because they don't, they don't believe what the Bible says. And so last week we established that there is a God in heaven who created everything that we can see, and he's a, a personal God. Voice to create. It was his decision to create. And because in order to make a decision, you have to be personal. And our God is personal. And so we're on this journey in a series called Grilled to, to get past just the very basic and, and kind of you know, early on and low level information and, 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 and insight that we can gain about God. And we're trying to move from the, the milk of God's word and the milk of the truth that is in this life and move to the meat. We want to get something a little more substantial, establish our foundation more firmly. So we're in, we, uh, Pastor Quentin in week one read us a verse from where Paul said that, that I gave you the milk of this relationship with God, but it's time to move on to the meat of your relationship with God. And we all know what goes on the grill, right? I told you last week, it's meat. Meat goes on the grill. If you put anything other than meat on the grill, it should only be to complement the meat that you already cooked on the grill because grills were made for cooking meat because animals taste good. It's just, it is how it is. PETA doesn't like me very much, but that's just how... I roll. So I'm excited uh, to, to be with you for, for week three. And we're going to take a look today because we learned last week that there is a God and that he is personal and that he created us. And if he chose to create us and he made us relational, there's a pretty good chance that if he made us to be relational people, and we are, none of us really like to be alone for extended periods of time. We're relational people. God made us that way. If God created us to be relational, he would have probably gone about a way to communicate with us. And in fact, he has. We call it the Bible. Now, as I'm sure all of you are aware, the Bible comes up against tremendous opposition in the world in which we live. There's a lot of people, especially the same people that don't believe in the same God that we believe in, who don't believe that the Bible that we hold to is actually God's communication to people that he wants to be in relationship with. 
And so what I want to do today is I want to spend some time taking a look at this gift, this communication from our Heavenly Father to us in the form of the Bible. And I want to see if we can answer the question, is the Bible really true? Can we trust it? Can we really believe that the Bible is worth reading? And can we really believe that it's God's word to us? And so I have a, um, I want to set up the message today. It's going to be in two different parts. All right, we're going to, we're going to look at two different parts of Scripture based on a really cliche but really catchy phrase that a friend of mine, a friend of a lot of you, Pastor Dennis Chapman, who's on our board of overseers. Dennis hung out with us early in you know, a lot of us for a couple of years. Um, and Pastor Dennis used to say in referring to the Bible that the Bible is the only book that couldn't have been written if someone would have written it, and it wouldn't have been written if someone could have written it. And he said that probably five years ago, and it's stuck with me ever since. And so I want to kind of divide our time together today in two parts so that you and I can get some confidence in this book that we claim is God's word to us. Now, here's why we claim that it's God's word to us. Because in, in 1 Peter chapter 3, and verse 15 in Scripture, we are commanded or given a, a challenge by the Apostle Peter to do this. It says this, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So we believe, as, as followers of Christ, we believe that the Bible is God's word. Peter tells us that we got to be ready to make a defense for that, that we ought to be able to make a logical, reasonable argument for the authority and the trustworthiness of Scripture. So here's what I want to do. Like I said, break the message into two parts. So if you're taking notes, here's the first part. You can write this down. The Bible couldn't have been written even if someone would have. They couldn't have done it. And let me, let, me, uh, let, me, let me tell you what, I'm, what that means, all right? The Bible has 40 different authors, Old Testament, New Testament combined, 40 different authors. There's 66 books, 40 authors, written over the period of about 1,600 years on 13 different compa- countries spanning three different continents, written in three different languages, and there's one central agreed-upon theme from start to finish. You tracking with that? 66 books, 40 authors, 1,600 years, 13 countries, three continents, three different languages, and they agree from start to finish. The Bible couldn't have been written even if... Let me... I'll tell you what. How about an illustration to, 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 to drive my point home? All right, now, my beautiful and brilliant wife has numerous roles in our family and she does almost all of them with excellence save one there is one role in my wife's life that has one job one task one task associated with one role and week after week after week after week, she fails miserably. Here it is. Her role in our family is to decide what we eat for lunch on Sundays. 
One job. One task. One objective. And every single week, I get up here and I preach. Me and an awesome team of volunteers tear all this stuff down. I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I'm sometimes frustrated. And I'm hungry. Not hungry. Hungry. Right? And I go to Aaron and I say, hey, babe, where are we going for lunch? Well, I don't know. I was talking to them and they said maybe we could go here. And I was talking. And then maybe we could go. Last week, last week, it was, it was my family, two other couples, and then a husband whose wife was out of town, so he was flying solo. So there, there was a grand total of like eight of us. I didn't do the math. I could have been wrong. It might be nine. But there were eight or nine. Nine. There were nine. There were nine of us. All right, doing math in my head. Sorry, y'all just get to watch me do math in public. That was awesome. All right, so four plus five, nine. So there were nine of us in a 20-minute span with a very, in one country spanning a couple of cities, and we couldn't agree on what to eat for lunch. But the Bible was written across 1,600 years with 40 different authors on 13 different countries in three different languages spanning three different continents, and they agreed start to finish. The Bible could not have been written if there were not some supernatural force orchestrating the entire deal. You, you try that, you get that, right? You ever had that? Show of hands. How many people in your family have said, hey, what are we doing for dinner and couldn't decide? Let's see it. Come on, put them up. It's all of us, right? We can't agree with four of us in a family. But the Bible agrees from start to finish. It's pretty awesome, right? That's good stuff. Gets me all jacked up. I hope that it gets you jacked up also. But there are still skeptics that would say that even despite the tremendous, that even that one reason, like I could give you that one reason, we could pray and you could go home and be like, yep, Bible's real. Like you, you could do that. We could do that. But I got a lot more, uh, like, a, like a lot more. Like we don't need plans for lunch because we're going to be here till two. But that's okay. We'll all, we'll go to Gary's. I, are they open? I don't know, whatever. So, all right, so. What, what I want us to see, though, is not only does the Bible, this incredible miracle of 40 authors across 1,600 years all collaborating to write this amazing book, this word from God that we have, but it also is one, probably the most historically accurate book in existence. See, there, there are two factors that historians and archaeologists archaeology, that word, you know what, you get it. Like, all the, the smart people, like the people that went to college for 14 years, those people, like, there are, there are two factors that determine the historical accuracy of any book. Here are the two factors, if you want to take some notes and write this down. Here are the two factors. Number one is how many manuscripts of the work are there available to cross-reference with one another to, to check for accuracy. So how many manuscripts are there? And how early are the manuscripts in reference to the events that they record? And so, in other words, how long after the events that they're talking about were the manuscripts written? Now, I think this is, this is pretty amazing as it pertains to the Bible. So, now, just for the sake of time, 
today, just for the sake of time. We don't have time to cover Old Testament and New Testament. We could look at the historical accuracy of both, and we could just just blow your minds with with how awesome and historically accurate both are. But for the sake of the time today, we'll just look at the New Testament. All right, so the story of Christ in the New Testament. Now, New Testament manuscripts, if you're taking notes or if you're like a geek and love numbers, check this out. The Bible manuscripts that we have access to today, there are 5,700 manuscripts written in Greek, which is the primary language of the time. And there were over 9,000 manuscripts in other language for a total of almost 15,000 copies of some portion of the New Testament. 15,000. The next closest historically recognized document that exists is Homer's Iliad. It has 643. So by any regard, according to historians and people that verify historical works as accurate, the Bible has 15,000 manuscripts, and they also kind of certified or guaranteed whatever Homer's Iliad, it has 643. I think we can make a case that the Bible is pretty historically accurate. You remember the other factor? Actually, let me back up before we get to the other factor. In A.D. 303, there was a Roman emperor named Diocletian. Diocletian blamed Christianity for the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, they were starting to be overtaken. The empire was starting to dissolve. He blamed Christianity. If we didn't ever trust in Christ and in your God, then everything would have been Great. So Diocletian ordered that every church, every manuscript, every copy of any kind of source of Bible be destroyed. And he also, in fact, ordered Christians to be killed. He was trying to wipe Christianity off the face of the planet. So if we still have 15,000 manuscripts, and in 303 AD, some dude tried to remove all of them, and we still have 15,000, I think that's pretty incredible. Check this out. Even if he would have succeeded, all right, this is going to, I love this. Even if Diocletian had succeeded in wiping out every copy of every biblical manuscript that existed, with the exception of 11 verses, only 11 verses in the entire New Testament, our early church fathers quoted scripture so much in their writings that we would have been able to reconstruct an entire New Testament with the exception of 11 verses just from the quotations that they made in their own writings. I don't know about you, but it kind of seems like to me that there was some supernatural force trying to make sure that his word never got wiped off of the pages of history. I told you that there were two factors, right? There was... How many manuscripts are there available? The Bible has 15,000. Next closest work has 643. Uh, the other factor was how early were the manuscripts in reference to the events that they recorded, right? Oh, you're going to love this. Okay. From every scholarly fact that we can find, the Bible, no, no book in the New Testament was written after 70 AD. 70. We believe that Jesus' death and resurrection occurred somewhere around 30 to 35 A.D. So we're talking about a gap, if we're lenient and whatever, of 40 years. So 40 years after the resurrection occurred, 
we, we no longer have any new copies of new information being written after 40 years after that. So they, they date from 40 and then on. That's pretty incredible, 40 years. Then again, the next closest work is Homer's Iliad, the closest manuscript to the, to the uh, events that Homer recorded were written 500 years after the events. 40 to 500. Are, are, you, are you tracking with me in how ridiculously awesome and historically accurate the Scripture is? And, and so scholars have argued, well, well, how come it wasn't any earlier? And if the resurrection was this tremendous, incredible thing that happened, then how come there weren't more people that wrote about it? And how can we be sure that, that nothing was written before 70 or after 70 A.D.? Like, how can we be sure that none of that took place? How many of y'all can read? How many of you can write? Some of y'all need some help, because I read your Facebook posts, and dang. Like, they taught grammar where I went to, whatever, another, another discussion for another day. So you and I can read and write. We, we can, most of us. <laughs> most. We'll, we'll, we'll speak in generality. How many of you ever wrote a book about 9-11? How many of you wrote an article about the events that took place on 9-11? A, a blog? And you can read and write. And none of y'all wrote anything down about 9-11? No book, no article, no blog, no journal entry? Check this out. In 70 AD, the Jewish temple was destroyed. The temple was the center of life for Jews. And in 70 AD, it was destroyed. No New Testament work records the destroying of the temple. None of them. It's not in there anywhere. But it's pretty clear from what we've seen so far that the Bible was trying to maintain a, a, a historically accurate account of the things that took place, yet none of them thought to write down anything that took place at the temple. That would kind of be like somebody writing a history of the United States today and not including anything about Pearl Harbor or 9-11. Like, they just didn't happen. We just didn't write it down. We didn't think it was significant. That would be the equivalent. So it's, it's easy to, to see that in the event that the Bible was still being written after 70, that somebody would have included events that took place at the temple because that was, the, the impact of that would have been even more significant to the Jews of that day than it would have been 9-11 would have been to us yet no, there's no writing after it and so w the other argument from the skeptics is well how come there aren't more copies or why didn't more people write about it well this culture that we're talking about in, in ancient Jerusalem people were mostly illiterate they couldn't read and write everything that they communicated was orally communicated you and I can read and write. None of us wrote a book about 9-11. How in the world will we expect illiterate people to write down things that took place about the resurrection? You tracking with me? The fact that we have 29 books in the New Testament and uh, all of them record something about Jesus, like this, that's pretty incredible evidence for the historical accuracy. So that's, uh, like so I told you, message in two parts, right? The Bible is wildly, historically 
accurate. More manuscripts than any other historical work and the earliest date of manuscripts after the events that were referenced. You tracking? It's, pretty, it's, histor- it's a historical work. Proven. Extra-biblical sources, sources outside of the Bible, have confirmed the events that the writers of the New Testament wrote down. So now I want to turn our attention from not just the historical accuracy and the miracle of how many people agreed to write it all, because that, that is the Bible couldn't have been written even if somebody wanted to. And we're going to move to the second half of my statement, right, the cliche thing, that it wouldn't have been written even if somebody could have. Now, they couldn't have done it. They couldn't have agreed without God's intervention on his word being written. They couldn't have done it. Impossible. But we do have it. So let's turn now to the second half. That it, They wouldn't have written it even if they could have. And I want to give you eight reasons. Now, I don't know about you. I typically need like one good reason to do or believe anything. Like I, I need one really good reason. I'm going to give you eight. Now, we're a little bit short on time. I'm talking a little bit fast because i got a lot of information to get out to you. So I'm going to give you eight, but we're going to hit them rapid fire with very little explanation. If you want more, you can get the book at the Hub. You can talk to me or one of the other pastors later. All right? We tracking? You good? You excited about this? Y'all look like, man, I wish you'd shut up. But, hey, I'm about to keep going, so I need you with me. We gotta be, we're going to be a little bit excited about this because this is good stuff. I want to give you eight reasons to believe the authors of the New Testament. These dudes that that took the time to write down the things that they did, I want to give you eight reasons that we can believe them and that they weren't making up stories. All right, number one, the New Testament writers included embarrassing details about themselves. Now, I don't know about you. I might lie and make myself look a little bit better. Some of y'all got some dating profiles and some Facebook information that ain't true. It is possibly okay, I might conceive of the idea of somebody lying to make themselves look better. I have a hard time believing anybody would lie to make themselves look worse. But they did. In the New Testament, the writers repeatedly include details about them not understanding that Jesus said. Significant stuff about like the resurrection and how to treat people and how to love people. Jesus would say, hey, you should do it like this. And they say, we don't get it. And they recorded that. They were dumb. They were dim, like they record the times that they were dim-witted and didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They were uncaring. And on at least two different occasions in the New Testament, Jesus tells his disciples to pray and they fell asleep. Hey, in, in his greatest hour of need, right before he'd be led away to the cross, Jesus asked his disciples, Hey, man, will you guys pray with me? Like I'm facing this tremendous uphill trial horrible horrific thing that's getting ready to happen with me i'm i am undone will you pray with me they're like yeah dog we got you we'll pray with you and they fell asleep and then they wrote it down they were rebuked by jesus like if they're trying to sell jesus in the story of him and they're trying to make themselves look good you wouldn't talk about the times that jesus fussed at you jesus called peter satan and he was like satan get behind me talking to peter And then Peter wrote it down, said, hey, Jesus, or one of the other disciples said, Jesus called Peter Satan. You don't include that if you're trying to make yourself look good. They were cowards. After Jesus went to the cross, you couldn't find a disciple. They were all hiding. Peter even denied Jesus three times. No, I don't know that guy. Don't know him. Cowards. And then they were doubters. 
time after time in the New Testament, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, I'm going to die. And then three days later, I'm going to come back to life. He told them multiple times. And then when the women come from the tomb to tell the disciples that Jesus wasn't in the tomb anymore, they didn't believe them. They doubted that Jesus did what he told them he was going to do. Now, if you were making, if you were making up a story... If this was just false and like, hey, let's try to make Jesus look good, you don't include that kind of stuff. Number two, not only did they include embarrassing details about themselves, they included embarrassing details and the difficult sayings of Jesus. Let me give you a few, just for reference. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus' family calls him out of his mind. They thought he was insane, lost his marbles. In John chapter 6, verse 66, Jesus makes this ridiculous charge to the people that are listening. They're all gathered around. He's got this huge following. He says, hey, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have life. And the Bible says that all, almost all but his disciples deserted him. Now, if you're trying to create a Jesus propaganda, you're trying to market Jesus, you're trying to sell Jesus to the rest of the world, you don't talk about the time that he preached something crazy and everybody left. Like, if y'all hate this message and nobody comes back next week, I'm just going to see if we can wipe that out from the history of Fusion City. Like, I, I don't want that recorded. But it was for Jesus. Jesus had his feet wiped by a prostitute, which could have been seen as a sexual advance, Luke chapter 7. He was crucified despite the belief that anyone who hung on a tree was under God's curse. He curses a fig tree for not having figs in a season where fig trees weren't supposed to have figs. These are not things you include about the Savior if you're trying to sell him to the rest of the world. Number three, New Testament writers left in the demanding teachings of Jesus. Most of them can be found in, in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Jesus said, if you look lustfully, you commit adultery, Matthew 5. Divorce and remarriage is adultery, Matthew 5, 32. If someone hits you on the left cheek, you should offer them your right cheek, Matthew 5, 39. How you judge will be, or how you judge is how you'll be judged, Matthew 7. Now, the writers of the New Testament were guilty of all the things that Jesus told people that if you do this, you're sinful. If you, can, if you can be sinful just by what you think, then all of the New Testament writers were guilty. If they were trying to build themselves up or if they were trying to build Jesus up, it, it would reason to me that they wouldn't include the stuff that's really hard to believe. If we're trying to grow a, a huge you know, audience of Jesus followers, you don't tell them all the hard stuff. You tell them all the good stuff, but they, they left in the hard stuff. Number four, the New Testament writers carefully distinguished Jesus' words from their own. Why is this important? Because they had the opportunity to put words in Jesus' mouth if they wanted to, but they were careful not to, especially with all of the first century uh, like difficult conversations and debates that were going on about circumcision and the role of women in the church and whether or not Gentiles could be believers and all this other kind of stuff. If 
a writer of the New Testament, one of the apostles, wanted to assert their own belief, all I got to do is say, hey, Jesus said, and make it up. But they didn't. They were careful to only record what he did say and to distinguish their words from his so that the truth would be told. Number five. Anybody else getting tired? I'm getting tired. All right, number five. The writers include events related to the resurrection that they would not have invented. Jesus was buried by a member of the Sanhedrin, Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the very people that convicted Jesus that led to his crucifixion, and it was a member of the Sanhedrin whose tomb he was buried in. I don't think the disciples would have liked the Sanhedrin very much, and to include that Jesus was laid to rest in the tomb of a member of the Sanhedrin is ridiculous. A couple months ago, we talked about the role of women in this culture. Women weren't held with any kind of regard during this time period. They weren't allowed to vote. They had no rights. They were seen as property, slaves, more so than equals with men. Yet, it was who that found Jesus not in his tomb? It was the women. Like, if they were going to make this up, they're not going to let women be the heroes in the story. One of the women that went to the tomb to prepare Jesus' body for burial was formerly known to be demon-possessed. How many of y'all are hiring a babysitter that on their resume says, I used to be demon-possessed, but Jesus healed me? <laughs> right? We're not, we're, not doing, like, we're, not, we're not believing these people. But these are, the, these are the people that the disciples record as going to the tomb first. The explanation of the Jews. Matthew records that the Jews had a theory as to why Jesus' body wasn't there anymore, and he wrote it down in his gospel. While the Jews that made the claims were still alive. Do you know how easy it is to refute something that somebody said when that person is still alive? If the Jews wouldn't have actually made reference to the resurrection and gave an explanation for how it happened, then when Matthew said, yeah, they all think that we stole his body, they would just say, no, we don't. He's still in there. We don't think that. But it's evidence. Matthew chose to include a very specific detail about the resurrection that he could not have invented. Number six, the New Testament writers include more than 30 historically confirmed people in their writings. If you are writing a fairy tale, you don't use real people. I wouldn't say if I was writing a, a storybook about Fusion City Church that you know, Donald Trump used to be the pastor here. Like I just, I don't, you don't use real people in a, in a story that you're making up that you're trying to pass off as history. You use fake people, names of people that nobody knows, so they can't confirm it or deny it. You don't use names of actual people that people could go to and say, hey, did you say this? And say, no, I didn't say it. Like, okay, well, then that dude that wrote it down is a liar. doesn't happen. The New Testament writers include 30 historically confirmed, over 30 historically confirmed people in their writings, which could have easily blown their credibility if they tried to implicate real people in a fictional story. Number seven, 
The New Testament writers include divergent details. When they didn't agree completely, they still wrote it down. Now, I don't know about you, but if you and I, a couple of us, were going to get together and try to make up a story that we're going to try to pass off as real... We would kind of collude together, right? Try to get our story straight, make sure that your story lines up with my story so that you, and your story lines up with his story so that everybody gets the same story. But they didn't. There were a couple different times where, where one person would record that there was an angel at the tomb, and then somebody else would say, no, there were two angels at the tomb. Now, he never said that there were only one angel, so it's not really a, it's not a variant, it's not a disagreement. It's just it's, it's consistent with multiple people telling the same story. If I told a story... And, David, you told the same story about the same event. There's a good chance it's going to sound a little bit different, right? Like, you're probably not going to say word for word what I would say. Same is true with the New Testament Scripture. Multiple people recording the event saw it from different perspectives and wrote down different things. Is it really that hard to to believe that that's possible? Here's what gets me. If you read a lot of the criticism about the Bible, the critics will tell you that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that they sound too much alike. That they're, they're too consistent. And then the same critics will tell you that the divergent details that the writers include make them too different, and there's, there's disagreement. So which is it? Are they too much the same, or are they too different? If, if you're asking me, I think they're just enough of both for it to be logical for us to believe that multiple people wrote down the same story, so they are a lot alike, but they wrote it from different perspectives, and so there's a couple different details that differ. Seems logical to me. I don't think that the skeptic's argument holds water. Kind of breaks down. All right, number eight, last one. The New Testament writers did not deny their testimony under persecution and threat of death. Now, I, I told you earlier, before the resurrection, Peter denied Jesus three times just because he was scared of being associated with Jesus. You remember that? Like, they, they said, hey, do you know that guy? No, I don't know him. Yet, after the resurrection, after Jesus has, appear, uh, has appeared to Peter, Peter and ten other of the disciples, eleven out of the twelve of them, are martyred for their faith. Martyred because they won't recant their story, martyred, killed, crucified, stoned, beaten, boiled in oil, all because they won't say that what we wrote down was wrong. You getting that? Now, put yourself in their shoes. If you're a liar, I'll, I'll do it for the sake of all of us. If I'm lying about something and somebody says, hey, either tell the truth or we're gonna crucify you. Nah, man, I was just playing. Like I, was, I, I just can't. We, we stole him. We, we, got, we got Jesus in the basement. Y'all go get him. Like he, we, just, we took him out of the tomb. We were just kidding. Please don't. Like don't. Please, please, please don't. Eleven out of twelve. Eleven out of twelve disciples were martyred for their faith. And the twelfth one was boiled in oil, just didn't die. He was eventually sent into exile on an island by himself. That's what exile means. It's redundant, sorry. All of them. Because they wouldn't recant it. That's, that's enough proof for me. So if you take into account all the things that we've talked about today, 
eight reasons that we can trust the writers of the New Testament, the ridiculous historical accuracy of Scripture and how supported it is by science and archaeology and geology and philosophy, then we can know that what we hold is true. This is God's word for us. You know, these disciples, they weren't looking for a new religion. They weren't looking for Jesus to come and looking for somebody to follow. I mean, for for most of the New Testament writers, maybe with the exception of Luke, all of the New Testament writers were Jewish. And they kind of had a pretty good gig. We're God's chosen people. We believe that he's the one true God, and this is, we are his chosen people, chosen to reign and rule forever and ever and to be his people. They weren't looking for Jesus. They weren't looking for somebody to come in. They didn't need to be rescued from anything. Yet all of them walked away from the traditions, the culture, and the beliefs of Judaism to follow Christ. And then they recorded for us what we have as the Bible. So there's only one possible explanation left. And that is that Jesus somehow completely deceived all of them. Which just doesn't seem right to me. But we'll actually address that. I'm going to shoot holes all in that line of thought next week. So you got to come back and we'll talk next week about is Jesus who he really said that he was. For now though, here's what I want you to walk out of here with today. The Bible is only possible through the supernatural workings of God who gave it to us. It's been verified by history. It has withstood unending onslaughts against this authenticity, against atheist scientists, and still we have it. We can get it, and we can read it. It's never been debunked, and it's still just as relevant as it ever was. The Bible says about itself that it is living and active, that it can divide between soul and spirit in the same way between bone and marrow. It has the ability to impact and affect our lives. Why? Because it is the supernatural word of God given to us through human authors so that we can relate to the God that wants to be personally invested and part of your life. This is what Peter had to say about God's word. 2 Peter 1, verses 19 through 21 says, And we have prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. We didn't make it up. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Is this helping anybody? Are you a little bit more confident now about what you hold in your hands when you read the Bible than you were when you came in? Knowing that it is historically accurate more than any document ever written? That it was written by men who gained nothing by telling the truth, yet they did it anyway. And when we read their words, we know that what they wrote down 
was real and true. So this week, what are you going to do? I have this amazing gift. I have this Bible that I can put my hands on, that I can access, that I can get through electronic devices and through my computer, and it's everywhere. Like, I can, I can get it. Nah, man, I'll just wait till next week. Pastor Brown will read some more next week. I'll get it then. Nah, come on. Come on. We can do better than that, can't we? When we have confidence that what we're reading is as true as it is, and we have all the, the, the confidence that we've gained today by knowing, man, we got to get in it. we got to get in God's Word. You can't depend on me and the other pastors to give you all the Bible that you ever get. So here's what I want you to do. Every single day on our Facebook group, not the page, but the group. you got to join the group. You like the page. That's how you tell the difference. If you're in our Facebook group, every single day I post a devotional, a couple verses of Scripture, some steps that you can take to walk through it and begin to apply it to your life. Would you commit with me this week that every single day this week, hey, Pastor Brian, I'm going to get up, I'm going to look on the Facebook group, I'm going to read the verses, man, I'm going to begin to just soak in this amazing thing that God's given us through Scripture. If you do that, would you just show, show hands? How many, how many of you would commit to, commit to that with me? This week. All right, about seven of you. That's awesome. Great. We're making great progress. Give me seven faithful warriors of the word this week. That's awesome. All right. Here's what I want you to do. Anything that you find this week that blows your mind about the Bible, I want you to put it on Facebook or on Twitter with this hashtag. All right. It's really short, easy to remember. Here it is. Ready? Couldn't if they would have, wouldn't if they could have. Hashtag. Hook it up. All right. Let's get the word out that the Bible is an amazing gift that we have from our Heavenly Father. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much, God, for the truth that is compiled within it and that we can know that it's true. God, not only by its historical accuracy, but because of the faithfulness of its authors. God, who stood to gain nothing, nothing except for persecution and fear of death from writing it. But God, they did it because they were faithful and because they believed that what they were writing down was right And it was true, and God it is. And it has so much incredible power to help us in the here and now. So God, would you help us as we commit together today to be active in reading your word, active in seeking out the truth that is within it. And God, would you then begin to light up the pages and reveal to us that which you have us to know so that we can know you better than we did before. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for the hope that we can have in a relationship through him with you. God, we love you, and we thank you for it in his name. Amen and amen.